Well, if you would turn with me now in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, as we come to the preaching of God's Word this morning, we are going to be in verses 10 and 11 this morning, but I'd like to read a little bit of context for us. I'm going to start in verse 7 and read through verse 11. Hear now the reading of the Word of the Lord. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us go to to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that You would let us hear Your steadfast love today, because we trust in you alone. Lord, help us and make us, cause us to know the way that we should go, because we lift our soul up to you this morning. Deliver us from our enemies, those who would cause us to depend on ourselves or on anything else. And we have fled to you, our God, for refuge. So teach us now, our Lord, to do your will. For you are our God, and may your Holy Spirit guide us this morning as we study your word and lead us on level ground and paths that are straight. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Philippians this morning, and there is one phrase in particular that comes up twice in this passage of Philippians 3 that I would like us to pay attention to. Paul says in verse 8, I count everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. Knowing Christ is what Paul says is the centerpiece of his life. He cares about nothing else in comparison to knowing Christ. And that is what comes up again in our focus this morning in verse 10, that I may know Him. As if it wasn't enough to say that He wants to know Christ once, He tells us again that He wants to know Jesus Christ. For many of us, we do want to know Christ. We want to know Him more. We want to know who our Savior is and what He's done for us. Maybe you are here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't even know who he is. Or you have heard the name Jesus and you have conceptions of what those around us in this world, your teachers in school, the news, the media, people that are in popular in our culture, what they say about Jesus. And you have content that they have told you that fills your mind of what you think about Jesus. But Paul wants to set the record straight for us of what it means to know Jesus for ourselves. 
Paul wants to show us this morning that growing in the knowledge of our Savior comes as we know three things about Him. Knowing His resurrection, knowing His sufferings as we share in them ourselves, and knowing His death. His resurrection, His death, His sufferings, and His death. That if you want to know Jesus, these are the three things that you must know about Him. And as you know these things, you will know Jesus better and better in your life. This is about an experience of Jesus. Knowledge that is experiential. It's not just something that is information out there about Jesus that we say, yes, this is true. But it is knowing who is Jesus for me. How do I know Jesus and how he relates to me as an individual, as a person? That he is not just a person out there that we know existed, but that he existed and came down and lived for us, and we can know him intimately. And I would like to look at these three ways that Paul presents to us this morning of knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, and being conformed to his death. So what does it mean to know the power of Christ's resurrection, as Paul tells us. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. What's interesting here is Paul does not say, I want to know Jesus Christ's resurrection. He says he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. What is the power of Christ's resurrection? What is this power that Paul is speaking of, that we can know this power in our own lives? Importantly, and singularly, it is justification. This is what Paul has just spoken about before, knowing that he does not have a righteousness of his own that he can present to God. The only righteousness that he can present to God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 says this, it says, Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, resurrected, for our justification. The power of Jesus' resurrection is our justification. That his life and his righteousness is now presented before God on our behalf. Christ's resurrection is our life. Because he is perfectly righteous. And he gives us that righteousness. We looked at that last week. That our righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. But there is another form of power that comes from Christ's resurrection. It is his incorruptibility. That's a big word. What is incorruptibility? Well, it means you can't corrupt something. You can't make it dirty. You can't make it filthy. You can't make it bad. We know what corruption looks like. You leave a piece of meat out on your counter for a couple days and you will clearly know what a corrupted piece of meat is. That now it has become unusable and worthless. But Christ's incorruptibility is something essential for us to know for our, our own lives. Because we are full of corruption. We feel this in our lives, in our hearts, in our days. But Jesus Christ does not only justify us when he rose from the dead, 
But he gives us his life. He, more and more, removes corruption from our lives. And that corruption that is in us cannot overcome the life that Jesus Christ now has and gives to us. It is the hope that we have as Christians. That our corruption does not have the final word in our lives. It is there. It is real. But Jesus' incorruptibility is overcoming the corruption in our lives. And that is the power that we need for the Christian life. That we have a life that cannot be overcome in us. That actually Jesus' incorruptibility overcomes our sin and corruption in our life. But how do we know this power? How do we know it? There's two ways. The first way is we know it intellectually. We know it with our minds. But secondly, we know it experientially. We know it in our own lives as we live out our lives each day. We know this power because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is alive today. A man who was dead in a tomb for three days was risen to heaven. Raised back to new life. We know that power exists. It is real. But we also know it by experience. That that same power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, he now exerts in our own lives. How does Jesus Christ's resurrection intersect with my own life? Well, we know it when we feel death in us. We know that because Christ is alive, our sin does not have the final word over us. We feel that sin in us, and we see it come up, and it accuses us to our consciences that we are guilty before God. We are not worthy of Him being present with us. But we know by experience that God loves us because of what Jesus has done. And we know that Christ is alive means that all of our pain, all of our suffering, are not the end for us. We can have hope. We have hope in the midst of all of our suffering in life that that is not the end. Because Christ is alive. And God assures our hearts before Him. That Christ is alive for us. And that our sufferings, our pain in life, is not the end. And more than that, we know that because Christ is alive, that in the face of all the opposition that we endure from this world, that we will conquer over it. Even if that opposition from the world results in our death. We know... That Christ being alive for us gives us courage, gives us strength as we walk into the, this world that opposes us. We know this by experience. But why do we need to know this power? Why is Paul so intent on knowing this power of Christ? Well, we need assurance. Assurance. You and I need assurance 
in the face of a world around us. The next thing that Paul tells us that I would like to look at, because you, as a Christian, are going to share in suffering. This is what you are called to as a Christian. And if you are going to face suffering in your life, you need to know the power of Christ's resurrection for you today. What does it mean to share in Christ's suffering? Well, we know that Christ suffered once from sin. That's what we read from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, that he suffered for sin. So there is a kind of suffering that we do not need to endure. We do not suffer for sin as Christ did. What is the suffering that Paul is speaking of? Well, it's not punishment for sins. I do want to make a clarification. There are consequences for sins that we do indeed suffer, those consequences. If we lie, we lose people's trust. That is a consequence. And then we must endure and suffer through the consequence of that sin. If we use cruel words, we hurt people and we send them away from us. But this is not the suffering that Paul is talking about here. This is the suffering that comes as we follow Christ. This is the opposition that we face from the world around us. It is the basic enmity, the war that exists between Satan and the people of God, that God told Adam and Eve in the garden would exist until the Savior comes to finally crush the head of the serpent. I will put enmity between you, your seed, and his seed, is what the Lord told Satan. There is an enmity between us and those who are in this world that are allied with Satan. And the Apostle John tells us about this. He says to them in 1 John chapter 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world is turned against Christianity. It is turned against truth in all of its forms, but it is singularly turned against Christianity. Christianity throughout the history of the world is a suffering religion. And it is one of the things that, sadly, Christians try their best to avoid, as if this is the state that we should be in as Christians. But in fact, suffering is normal. For us as Christians. Because that is the path that our Savior tread himself. He suffered. And he's not only endured, but he showed the example for us. That Satan still exists in this world. And if he attacked Jesus, he is going to attack us. But Paul doesn't just acknowledge this fact. He wants to know Jesus in it that I may know him and the power of his suffering and may share fellowship in his sufferings, may share his sufferings. See, there's something unique that happens to us as we suffer for the cause of Christ. We know more intimately, more deeply, what our Savior endured for us. We know what Jesus went through. We understand the depths of his love for us. 
Do you know what it's like to be opposed? Do you know somebody who has faced opposition in their life and you've seen them, people attack them, and you see the difficulty and struggle that it is for them? And then when you face that same opposition yourself, then you know what that person has gone through. And we have a taste of that in our lives. And we can know the love and depths through which our Savior has gone for us in suffering for us in opposition by the world. But Christian, this is very important for you to understand today. The world opposes you. We proclaim a message that this world hates. It opposes it with all its might. There is one thing this world does not want to hear. That it is unrighteous. That they are sinners. That they need a savior who alone can save them. It is sad. It is a terrible thing that exists in this world. That the world would be turned against the people of God. It is not something that we are excited about. It is true. But this is something we should expect in our lives as we live righteously for our Savior in this world. Because we know that we follow Christ. And that we have an opportunity to know the love and depths to which our Savior has gone for us. Paul wants to know the resurrection of Christ. He wants to know the sharing of Christ's suffering. But it doesn't end there. This is, it's as if it gets worse and worse. A downward step. From the heights down to the depths. We don't simply just suffer for the sake of Christ. It goes even deeper. Becoming like him in his death. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, this is the Christian faith. This is what it means to follow Christ. Now, what is this death that we are being conformed to, becoming like him? Interestingly, this word in Greek has the word morphe, what we get our English word morph or form from. And we saw that word show up in chapter 2 when Jesus took on our form, existing as God from all eternity in all its blessedness, He now took on to himself our form. And now Paul tells us that we are being conformed to his form. But what form are we being conformed to? His death. But what is this death that we are being conformed to? The death that we are being conformed to, first and foremost, is our death to the law. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that we die to the law with Jesus Christ? Well, it means, first and foremost, that we no longer look to the law as a means by which we justify ourselves before God. This is what Paul has just told us. That I may be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Because what happened when Jesus died on the cross, 
is he took away the curse of the law. He died to that curse. He succumbed. He endured that curse and killed it forever. And that means when the law of God comes to you who trusts in Jesus, the curse of that law is removed. Now, every single one of us in this room is disobedient to God's law. And we are rightly deserving of God's judgment for our sins. But the incredible thing is what Jesus Christ has done, is that he took the curse, the punishment from that law, and he took it away when he died on that cross. So that when God's law comes to you and says, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, We no longer look at ourselves and check to see if we have kept the law so that we can stand before God and say, I am righteous. We have died to the law in that form. Instead, we say what Paul says in verses 8 through 9. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I have suffered the loss of my own righteousness, Paul tells us, among other things. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is precisely what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is the most important aspect of our dying with Christ, is our death to the law, our death to the law of God. Is that we died to the law as a means of judging us. With Christ, the judgment of the law is removed and taken away from us. Now, the law of God is still the standard of righteousness. It is still the standard of righteousness. But it is not the means of our righteousness before God. The law is our standard of righteousness. But it is not our means of righteousness before God. The law shows us what righteousness looks like. But you cannot make yourself righteous before God with this law. And that's what happens when we died with Christ. We died to the judgment of the law, and we died to the law as a means to make ourselves righteous before God with it. Only Jesus Christ can make you righteous. And Paul is showing that our entire life is a continual conformity to the death of Christ. That we are dying to ourselves. We are dying to this law and looking at it and saying, I need this to make me righteous so I can stand before God. Paul is saying to you, the law no longer has power over you as a Christian. It is certainly a means by which we can glorify God And obey Him in our lives. But it is not the power of your life.
We do not have need of the law to make us righteous before God, and therefore we are freed. We are righteous in God's sight. Apart from the law. And we are freed now to give ourselves because we're righteous in God's sight. We're free to give ourselves away. And that leads to the death of the world around us. We give ourselves away to those around us in service because we know I don't have to do this to make myself righteous. I'm already righteous in God's sight. I do this now freely because this is who God has made me. And we can die to the world around us because we're ready to serve it. And we do not need its judgments, its evaluations to decide what we are going to do. Self-righteous people do not know how to serve. They don't know how to love. They don't know how to give themselves away. They only know how to condemn you and tell you that you are wrong. They do not know how to bear your burdens. They don't know how to endure your sin, your sorrow, and your suffering. Self-righteous people ultimately are looking out for themselves and how they are going to be righteous. Martin Luther, in one of his tracts called Two Kinds of Righteousness, he points to the instance of Simon the leper and Mary as she was serving Jesus. And it is interesting, this man is disdaining this woman who is at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her tears. And Martin Luther points out the unrighteousness of Simon the leper, who thought he was so righteous for this wicked, evil woman who would come and dare touch Jesus. And he points out that Jesus sees no righteousness in Simon the leper. That Simon did not see this woman as somebody who loved Jesus Christ. No, all he saw was her filthiness. Jesus takes no thought for Simon that he had invited him over, that he was being generous, all the things that we would think are righteous. Jesus takes no thought for. But Jesus then points to this woman, who all of us, along with Simon, would recognize as a sinner as an unrighteous person. And he points to her. Her righteousness. That from the moment she came in, she did not cease to anoint him with oil. She did not cease to pour out her love on him. But that righteousness came not from her own awareness of her righteousness. It came because she saw, I have none. This is the only one who is righteous for me. And so she died to the world. She did not care what Simon thought about her. I don't care what these people think because this is the righteous one. And so we die to the world around us. We only care about what Jesus thinks about us. And a self-righteous person cannot do that. That is the death that we are continually being conformed to. Dying to this world. Jesus Christ did not care what the people around him thought. As he hung upon the cross, naked, 
hearing their insults and shame being hung at him and flung at him. He did not care about what they thought. He cared about us. And he gave his life. And that is the image that we ourselves are being conformed to. But there is a last thing, that we die to sin. We die to our sin. We know that if Christ died to sin, suffering the judgment that our sin deserves, that we are called to put to death those sins in our own life. It is the constant path of the Christian. It is precisely Jesus' command to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Our whole life is one of dying. The Christian life will feel like constant death to you. It is a death to ourselves. We are constantly learning to consider others as more important than ourselves. And that's going to feel like death. And it's precisely why people reject Christianity. They don't want to die to themselves. They want to hold on. They don't want to come and die. They want to hold on to this world. And it's why we struggle as Christians in our lives too. We want to hold on because we think that this life is where we have life. We don't want to let go. We don't want to not be in control. We always want to feel good. We do not want to serve and give our lives away. But I love what John Calvin says commenting on this. We must all therefore be prepared for this. That our whole life shall represent nothing else than the image of death. Until it produces death itself. As the life of Christ is nothing else than a prelude of death. But here's the truth about this that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. For we are the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Among those who are perishing, we are to them a fragrance of death to death. The world looks at us and they see, you Christians, you just smell like death. But to the other, to those who are being saved, We are the fragrance, the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Christians, you know this. As you see and watch your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ dying to themselves and putting you before them, you see life. You see the life of Christ manifested in them. And it is a sweet, sweet smelling aroma. But Paul does not end here. He doesn't end with death. He says in the end, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean by this? Paul says that, simply put, whatever means God uses to choose to bring death in my life, he welcomes that. Bring it on. Whatever means God chooses, 
to bring about death in my life. Let it come. It is simply what Paul says earlier in this book. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet if I am to die, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. If I'm to die, I don't know. I can't decide what I would rather have. And that's why I titled this sermon, Resurrection, Suffering, Death, and Resurrection. Because like Paul, he longed for the resurrection. And he knew that all that death was going to do was a pathway to that resurrection. Multiple people asked me if this was a typo in the sermon. And it's not. The Christian life begins with resurrection. And it ends with resurrection. But the means to obtaining our future resurrection goes through the pathway of suffering and death. But the glorious truth for you and I today is that before we ever step foot on that pathway, we have resurrection. We have life. Indestructible life, immortal life, incorruptible life, given to us by our resurrected Savior. We begin with resurrection. We have everything from Jesus Christ given to us at the beginning of our Christian life. Every promise is confirmed. Everything that we long for to be gone from us, our sin, our sufferings, our weaknesses, our fear of judgment. Christ says, I will overcome, I have overcome. It is all gone in Jesus. And that is where we start. And the wonderful news for us today is that's not just where we start. That's where we end. We end in resurrection. We will live again, even if we die. No matter if our sufferings of our bodies takes us, no matter if this world around us takes our lives, we will live again and never die. Because we are united to Jesus Christ, our Savior. As Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, and be found in Him. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice in your Savior. That He has given you His resurrection life. And He will resurrect you from the dead when He returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice that you have given us Jesus Christ. And that we walk this pathway of suffering and eventually death. But Lord, we have hope and we praise you for giving us hope today that whatever we face in this life, you will overcome through the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you give yourself to us today even now. Give us the strength and the courage that we need for this life. 
to die to ourselves, and to live to you. We pray this in Christ's name.